When I was growing up in the 60s and early 70s, peace was all around me. I mean, the concept of peace, the word, the aspiration, the symbols, peace symbols everywhere. Posters, bumper stickers, album covers, scrawled on school notebooks, carved into the top of school desks. Not me, not ever, no. The peace sign. Peace was in songs and books and movies and paintings and TV shows and art and political action and creative expressions of all kinds. Living in peace was considered by a large segment of the culture or of the counterculture, as it was sometimes called, as a worthy goal, maybe the worthiest of goals. Edwin Starr was singing, War, what is it good for? Cat Stevens was singing, I've been smiling lately, dreaming about the world as one, and I believe it could be someday it's going to come. Because out on the edge of darkness, there rides a peace train. Peace train, take this country. Come take me home again. And John Lennon and Yoko Ono, of course, were singing, All we are saying is give peace a chance. Yet peace was never really given a chance. <clears throat> and rather, it became something of a sentimental, unrealistic notion in the evolving culture of the United States. Cat Stevens' song, Peace Train, came out in 1971, and by 1974, musician, producer, and songwriter Nick Lowe is writing a song entitled, What's So Funny About Peace, Love, and Understanding? Peace was increasingly the subject of parody rather than politics, and the impetus toward working for peace dropped precipitously in this century as we embarked on the ominously apocalyptic-sounding War on Terror. Just listen to what President Obama said as he accepted the Nobel Peace Prize in 2009. As someone who stands here as a direct consequence of Dr. King's life's work, I am living testimony to the moral force of nonviolence. I know there is nothing weak, nothing passive, nothing naive in the creed and lives of Gandhi and King. Okay, so far so good, right? Nonviolence, he says, is not weak. Peace is not passive. Gandhi and King, both of whom were inspired, remember, by the writings and life of Aden Ballou, Gandhi and King were not naive in their support of nonviolent resistance. But, President Obama goes on to say, but as a head of state sworn to protect and defend my nation, I cannot be guided by their examples alone. I face the world as it is and cannot stand idle in the face of threats to the American people. For make no mistake, evil does exist in the world. A nonviolent movement would not have halted Hitler's armies. Negotiations cannot convince Al-Qaeda's leaders to lay down their arms. Unquote. Did you hear that? 
Though President Obama first says that Gandhi and King were not naive, he then kind of sort of seems to be saying they are when it comes to the world as it is and the existence of evil. Though he first says that peace is not passive and nonviolence is not weak, he kind of sort of is saying that neither are very practical. I bring this up not to single out President Obama's administration in its attitudes towards war. They were basically consistent with every other administration in history, but to show how the concept of a peaceful world, the belief that peace is possible, the aspiration for a world at peace, these have all taken such hits in our time that we heard only about the limits and little about the promise of peace, even at an international event centered around an award devoted to peace. And while I realize we have never looked to presidents to lead our peace movements, that attitude that Obama articulated extends well beyond the White House to houses up and down the streets of America. That attitude that says peace is all well and good while people are behaving, but let's be real, folks, war is so much more practical when it comes to facing threats. Really? Practical? Let's take a look at the cost for America's post-9-11 wars as reported by the Nation magazine last week. Over $8 trillion. Along with 176,206 deaths in Afghanistan, 66,650 deaths in Pakistan, somewhere between 275,087 and 306,495 deaths in Iraq, 266,325 in Syria, 112,092 in Yemen, 778 deaths in non-specified countries for a total of between 897,150 and 928,000 558, nearly a million deaths. Which would be one thing if terror had been defeated, if evil had been vanquished, if the world as it is had been significantly shaped for the better by these wars or this use of force, as Obama euphemistically calls it. But remind me, what was accomplished exactly? And then tell me what reverberates out from those wars, besides the costs you just heard that can be quantified in some manner. What about the ongoing costs, the ripples of pain that move out and out, the anger and sorrow? How many families do these numbers represent? What manner of irreversible pain are survivors dealing with throughout the rest of their lives? What resentment flares forth from the latest drone strike? Each war, each act of violence, each show of force becomes an incubator for the next and the next and the next and the next. Listen, I don't want to be naive about the presence of evil in the world either. 
But when Obama says a nonviolent movement would not have stopped Hitler's armies, I can't help but wonder if nonviolent movements may have prevented Hitler's ascendance. When he says, I face the world as it is, is he implying that King and Gandhi did not face the world as it is? When he says, I cannot stand idle in the face of threats to American people, is he saying that peace is synonymous with standing idle? Because remember, he already affirmed that peace was not passive and nonviolence was not weak. I'm picking on Obama's Nobel Peace Prize speech because I think it provides entry into all the excuses we make for going to war. And if we can deconstruct those excuses, maybe we can find our way to a new response to the world as it is. Obama mentions the theory of just war. Just war, meaning a war that is justified on moral grounds. And he does point out how that theory has been abused. All too often, just war theory is just another excuse to go to war. And just, as in justice, makes me think of the way the word peace is most commonly heard these days. As part of a brief and straightforward phrase that is shouted out at rallies and marches and protests. No justice, no peace. Now, to me, that says more about the struggle for justice than it does about peace. In other words, no justice, no peace is declared in response to counterfeit calls for peace that are only meant to silence resistance. No justice, no peace is a response to people in authority who don't so much want peace as they want quiet. No, say the marchers, we will not be quiet. We will not be silent in the face of injustice. And until there is justice, there will be no peace. Because that's not what peace, real peace, the peace of our highest aspirations is about. Peace is not being quiet or complicit when we are called to make some noise, to get into some good trouble in the pursuit of justice. This phrase, no justice, no peace, can indeed be traced back to the work of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., a man who would never have claimed that peace was about being quiet. No, he wrote that true peace is not the absence of tension, but the presence of justice. And yes, King said there can be no peace without justice. But that was the second part of a statement that began with, there can be no justice without peace. There can be no justice without peace and no peace without justice. And he proclaimed this outside of Santa Rita, California prison, where he had just visited Vietnam War protesters on December 14th, 1967. <clears throat> Charged with watering down the civil rights movement by his anti-war activities, he said, I see these two struggles as one struggle. There can be no peace without justice and no justice without peace. True peace. 
the presence of justice, which means we connect with one another and care for each other and take up one another's struggles because we not only know in our heads, but we know in our hearts, in our bones, that we are connected. It strikes me that war is about division, peace is about connection, and justice arises from the recognition of and the willingness to grapple with that connection. Alas, as a society, we have become obsessed with security. And rather than striving toward the security that comes with truly connecting, we are vainly striving to ensure security by desperately protecting. We have decided that peace will not provide safety, but rather that safety will provide peace. Safety ensured, we are told, by border walls and drone strikes and airport security and home security and armed security guards and space forces and enhanced interrogation and arming teachers and border walls and the right to bear arms and good guys with guns and more and more and more prisons and stricter laws and more severe punishments and taking the fight over there and keeping them out. We are told, whether on a global, national, community, or personal level, we are told to believe that if we can just create, hoard, and procure enough weapons to ensure our safety, we will be at peace. How's that working? Protecting from, that is war. Connecting to, that is peace. It is not easy. And if we are going to look at the world as it is, we cannot but recognize that we are all connected. Peace in Martin Luther's description is not giving up. It is not standing idle in the face of threats, nor an ignoble retreat from the struggle for human rights. It is not an apathetic stance toward injustice. It is not cowardice when courage is called for. It is not passive. Peace in this formulation is the recognition of connection, the willingness to stay in relationship, to engage the struggle for justice with love, even when faced with hate. Peace occurs in the midst of tension, in the midst of struggle, in the midst of engaging with the messy, heartbreaking, unclear, painful stuff of life and ourselves, and other people. So there is that chain of connection that Lao Tzu describes that you heard in the chalice-lighting words, starting with peace in one's heart, one's soul, one's center, whatever you want to call it, nurturing spiritual growth, watching that urge to strike out, to strike back, to protect from rather than connect to, within myself. Eckhart Tolle writes, you find peace not by rearranging the circumstances of your life, but by realizing who you are at the deepest level. Nonviolence is not a garment to put on and off at will. Its seat is in the heart, and it must be an inseparable part of our being, Gandhi wrote. We have a ways to go, we humans. 
it was somehow heartbreaking to me to realize that part of the International Day of Peace was the call from the United Nations for a 24-hour ceasefire. 24 hours? I know, it's the International Day. 24 hours makes sense. But I thought, is that the best we can do as a species? 24 hours? Once a year? And I have no idea if that ceasefire is obeyed across the world. I am guessing, alas, that it isn't. I don't even know if this country stops its drone strikes long enough to obey it, but we do know about the August 29th drone strike that killed 10 civilians, seven of them children. First described as righteous by General Milley, he later admitted it was a mistake and called it, quote, a horrible tragedy of war, unquote which is something short of an apology. The New York Times article goes on to say, civilian deaths from drone strikes have been a recurring problem in more than two decades of fighting in places like Afghanistan and Iraq and are unlikely to go away as the Biden administration moves toward what officials call over-the-horizon operations in Afghanistan. Strikes launched against terrorist targets in the country from great distances away. So, yeah, we have a ways to go. And I am grateful to Ann Ho for patiently but persistently encouraging us to recognize the International Day of Peace in our services. This is the first of what will be an annual tradition. Because I cannot help but resonate with the words of the UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres. As a human family, we face a stark choice. Peace or perpetual peril. We must choose peace. Peace is not a naive dream. It's a light in the darkness. Guiding us to the only pathway to a better future for humanity. Let's walk the pathway of peace as if our lives depended on it. Because they do.